Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. As a two-time Grammy Award-winning member of Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, saxophonist composer Jeff Coffin has traveled the world, leaving his mark as one of today's most talented musicians. He has shared the stage with not only the Flecktones, but also with an amazingly diverse list of musicians, such as the Dave Matthews Band, Branford Marsalis, McCoy Tyner, Van Morrison, Leonard Skinnerd. The Wailers, J.D. Souther, Vinnie Caliuta, and Indian guitarist Prasanna. At a personal level, Jeff is constantly reaching for the unique, both compositionally and also in playing technique. You see, Jeff is well known for occasionally playing alto and tenor saxes simultaneously, creating double impact performances that leave audiences breathless. His collaborations are just as interesting and unique. He's a current member of the Mondo Trio with keyboardist Jeff Babco and drummer Vinnie Caliuta, and also plays in the Jeff Babco Trio. Both eclectic bands seem to reach new heights in musical composition and experimentation. In the midst of it all, Jeff even performs in his own band, the Jeff Coffin Mutet, which takes its name from the word mutation, a descriptor that Jeff often uses to describe the ever-changing nature of music. By the way, his much-anticipated solo record is soon to be released. We're glad to welcome Yamaha and Van Doren performing artist Jeff Coffin to Inside MusicCast. Hey, Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, Jeff, I just wanted to start off by asking sort of a basic question. You know, why the sax? What, ins- what inspired you to first pick up the instrument? Mm-hmm. And when did you realize that playing sax was the path your career was going to take? Yeah. Uh, originally, I wanted to uh, be a drummer. Oh, yeah? And uh, when I was in uh, living in Maine, a small town in Maine called Dexter, Maine, uh, you know, when it's time to, to pick the instruments and choose them and all that, I was uh, wanting to play drums. And, you know, I'm sure my folks were behind me, like, waving my band director off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was, he was like, well, you know, the saxophone's kind of nice. And I went, oh, okay, sure, why not? And so, uh, so the funny thing is, man, is when, when I got the instrument home, I was playing alto. I remember very, very distinctly, man, when I got the instrument home, I opened it up, and of course, you know, the, there's the mouthpiece and the ligature reeds and, uh-huh. you know, blah, 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 blah. There's a bunch of different parts. And I remember opening the case, and I looked at it, and there were all these parts, and I just kind of shook my head, and I just closed the case. <laughs> it's too, compli- like, too complicated. Oh, man. <laughs> right, exactly, too complicated. But, you know, I actually I knew fairly quickly um, that I kind of had an affinity for it. You know, I was... Uh, and probably still am a bit of a ham uh, when it comes to playing. And uh, I just remember, you know, being able to pull out melodies pretty quickly. And, you know, playing music excited me so much that I, I usually wouldn't sit down in band. I would usually stand. Mm-hmm. And as a trombone player and I, we would just basically stand together in band. And uh, my director was like, man, if you want to stand, you go right ahead. <laughs> it moves you that much to stand, then go ahead and stand. I, I had the same sort of experience on that day when you go into middle school and you pick out your instrument. And I, I wanted uh-huh. to play marimba. You know, it, was my, it was my passion to play marimba. And my band director looked at me and he goes, no, you know, you've got nice, big, thick lips. Why don't you, why don't you play the tuba? I said, no way. 
you know what? I played tuba for three years in high school. Also, I played sousaphone for three years. Oh yeah, yeah. In uh, in marching band, uh, when I I moved to New Hampshire, and uh, my director in New Hampshire moved all the uh, the woodwind players to uh, to brass instruments because you know it's it's so cold up in New England that. There's nothing worse, man, than a, than a clarinet or a flute or a saxophone playing when it's 15 degrees out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, except for maybe a piccolo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so he moved everybody to brass instruments, and, uh, and I did tuba for three years, sousaphone. Let me sort of shake your memory. What was the first model of the sax that you picked up? It was a Vito. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, listen. Well, you know, by the time I was uh, by the time I was in seventh grade, the summer of my seventh grade year, I was uh, I was playing with my director in a trio, <laughs> and uh, I was able to uh, um, work enough that I was uh, in my eighth grade year. I was actually able to buy my first horn. Really? And uh, which was a King Super Twenty, and that was probably nineteen. 78, 79, somewhere right around there. Right. And uh, and I remember it just took forever to get there, man. It was just coming up from Boston, but from the middle of Maine, that seems like it might as well be Antarctica. <laughs> and, uh, so it just took forever to get there. And, yeah. you know, I would go down to the office every day going, is my horn here yet? Is my horn? No, no, it's not here yet. We'll not call here. you. We'll let you know. No doubt. <laughs> basically leave us alone. <laughs> well, you made, you made the good instrument uh, decision. I think it's uh, panned out to be a decent career, huh? Oh, thanks. Yeah, sure. Hey, listen, listen, I was uh, recently on your website, and I was really glad to see that uh, you had mentioned, you know, some amazing classic, what I call classic kings and of uh, of jazz, Coltrane, Duke, Monk, Miles, and so on, and yep. and how they influenced you, you know, growing up, and uh, the sounds that uh, made you what you are today, and in your style. And But my question is sort of a, apart from the classics. I mean, let's talk about some contem- contemporary influences. Um, you know, who have contributed to what Jeff Coffin, uh, how he plays, or what you've adapted to. Who are the the, the, the contemporary people that have uh, have sort of uh, added some spice to to who you are? Boy, there's so many, man. Um, my listening palette is really, really wide, mm-hmm. and uh, the the stuff that has really mm-hmm. knocked me out over the last, I would say, twenty years or so has been. Uh, more in the world music realm and more field recordings. Yeah. Um, I would say instrumentally in 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 what we would consider to be jazz, whatever the heck that word means anymore. Right. Um, probably the the biggest influence for me uh, in the last fifteen or twenty years would have to be Ornette Coleman. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. When I got into Ornette, and when I finally was able to uh, hear his music in a way that uh, it opened up for me, I about drove off the road. Hmm. Uh, and Alice Coltrane also, her music has meant a lot to me over the last yeah. number of years. Um, as, as far as stuff that's outside of what we would consider to be American jazz, a lot of African music, a lot of music from Mali, mm-hmm. even, uh, like Ungare, who was a, an amazing, amazing Malian vocalist. Sure. Uh, she's the diva of Mali. Um, Kasi Diamati, uh, T- uh, Tumani Diabati, uh, the great chorus player. Um, uh, lots of different music from that region where there's a lot of not only uh, African influence, but a lot of uh, Middle Eastern influence also. Mm-hmm. And so you hear, hear a very melismatic kind of vocal that's going on, but at the same time you're hearing these very traditional, very uh, ancient uh, African rhythms mm-hmm. that are rolled in there also. So that influences my composition a lot as well, thinking about layering things on top of things and and uh, and how different parts need to be able to stand all by themselves, um, 
and then you can kind of layer with those, you know? Exactly. And so uh, uh, a lot of African music, you know, field recordings also from Africa, uh, from South Africa, from from Ghana, from uh, the Congo, um, you know, places that, that uh, you know, they don't think about Pro Tools. They don't think about, oh, this is a little out of tune. They're mm-hmm. working with sound of nature, you know, even, even pygmy music. Uh, from the Atori Forest. I mean, stuff that's you really can't describe it in in, in terms of Western tonality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, music from South America, certain Brazilian music, um, a lot of Afro-Cuban music. Also, um, love Afro-Cuban stuff. Um, flute players from Cuba. Um, Indian music has been a, a kind of a revelation in a lot of ways. Also, the way that they. Uh, conceptualize and understand rhythm and and uh, uh, their tea highs. You know how they they have these very very complex uh, melodies and and over kind of a stagnant harmony, mm-hmm. um, using different notes, kind of kind of limiting themselves to particular note choices to explore those sure. from a rhythmic foundation. Um, you know, there's a tune that I wrote called the Mad Hatter Rides Again. It's an eight and a half. Mm-hmm. When I wrote it, I didn't realize it was an eight and a half, but I, I attribute that directly from the Indian stuff. Wow. And uh, there's a tune on um, on an upcoming record of mine uh, called L'Esperance, uh, which is definitely dealing with certain Indian rhythms uh, in certain patterns. And so uh, there's been a big influence there. Um, even Aboriginal music out of, uh, out of Australia, you know, hearing some of that and incorporating, um, you know, some of the sounds that I get on the saxophone are... are uh, comparable in some ways to the sounds of the didgeridoo, where there's overtones, right. there's more than one tone going on, right, right, right. manipulated mm-hmm. vocally even. Um, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim from Africa has been a huge influence. Um, uh, certain music out of Scandinavia also, uh, certain things I've heard. A lot of the stuff from ECM, the ECM label is really interesting to me. Right. Uh, folk music from America, blues music from America, the, all the Alan Lomax stuff, you know, the prison work songs, and um, uh, there's another record called Angola Spirituals. Right. Um, you know, very, very wide stuff. You know, obviously a lot of rock stuff, too, groups like Radiohead and Tortoise. I really dig what those guys are doing. Sure. Right. Um, Betty LeVette, I love that stuff. Uh, Al Green, um you know, the old soul stuff, um, Marvin Gaye and, and Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, King Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on, plus all the jazz guys, you know, that, that you talked about and many, many more. Um, you know what, what, you know, the essence of what I'm, I'm picking up of what you're saying is, you know, you're, you're into the culture of it. You were talking about the different cultures of Africa and and uh, Afro-Cuban and whether it's Brazilian yeah. or whatever. I mean, we're talking culture here. It's not necessarily music that leads you to culture, but you have to want to get into the culture and understand it. And for some reason, the culture brings you to music. And so it really is a combination of music, musical culture that that you're talking about. I mean, that takes you away. Right? I, I think it is. Partially because I think that, that those things are intrinsically linked with yeah. those cultures. Yeah. You know, the music um, in Africa is not, you're not able to separate it from the culture. You know, there's, there's music for birth and death. There's music for puberty and, and for old age, for a good harvest, uh, bad harvest, uh, uh, rainy season, dry season. Um, you know, all these different things, marriage and... and uh, um, so there's there's no division. It's, yeah. it's part of their religion. It's part of their everyday life. Um, I was listening to some music from Morocco last night that this family 
um, <clears throat> that was playing and singing, these these this family, this genera- this music is from a family that's a thousand years old. You know, these these generations have gone through. They've been they've been musicians for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talk about some depth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, my God, you know, we talk about you know guys like. Ravi Coltrane or, or, or Felix Pastorius or, or uh, uh, Matt Garrison or, right. or some of these guys that are second generation. Um, and you think about the depth that's going on there, but you talk about a thousand years. <laughs> mm-hmm. You studied at the University of, of New Hampshire and also at uh, North Texas University. And which came first and, and why the two schools? Um, well, initially, I was living in New Hampshire and I went part-time at UNH for a couple of years, basically to uh, kind of learn how to practice, I think. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, working on things that, that I felt were real weaknesses in my playing. But then I realized also that, that if I was going to do this, I had, to, I had to really go in over my head. I had to get away from... Um, any kind of distractions that I might have, you know, being around a bunch of buddies and, yeah. and uh, you know, my family and places that were familiar. So I went around and I checked out some schools, and it just felt like North Texas was the right place for me to go. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I encourage uh, young players who are, are thinking about college is to go and, and, and check these places out and, and go to a place that feels that you'll be challenged, first and foremost, and that you feel like you can really grow. And, uh, you know, don't go to Berkeley just because it's Berkeley. Go to Berkeley because it feels like the right place for you to be. Exactly. Well, there are a lot of major, major schools that are just wonderful that, you know, sort of sort of uh, best-kept secrets, too, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, continuing with that, you, you studied with uh, Joe Lovano, who, you know, he was an amazing woodwind player and apparently could hold his own as a drummer, too. Mm-hmm. And how and when did you meet up with Joe, and what did you take away from your experience with him? Um, well, I first, I first really heard Joe on the John Schofield record, uh, which is called Time on My Hand. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I was at a party one night at North Texas, uh, you know, a music, musician's party, and so... I was kind of checking out some stuff and, and uh, hanging out. And this had just come out, and so somebody had it, and they were playing it, and I was completely floored. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really couldn't believe what I was hearing, because up until that point, Michael Brecker really had, um, really had a hold on the sound yeah. and the concept and all that, and, which was great, but I, I just heard everybody trying to be a Brecker clone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, the reason that we all gravitate towards him is because he's such a unique individual. What's the sense uh, in trying to sound like someone that's a complete individual? Yeah. You know, so so when I heard Lovano, I thought, oh my God, he just changed the sound of the saxophone. Yeah. And he's, he's coming at it from a completely different direction. He's, you know, you hear Lester Young and, and, and Dewey Redmond and Joe Henderson and Brecker right. and, and Braganzi and Garzo and all these different guys train, obviously, Ornette. Um, Sonny, you hear the whole history of the saxophone and Joe, but you also, like you were saying, you know, he's a great drummer also and, and uh, has recorded uh, um, on drums as well on some of his uh, um, CDs. Hmm. He, um, he brings an understanding of an entire rhythm section uh, to his playing of the saxophone. One of, one of the great things that he told me, and there were a number of things, um, uh, was that you let your instrument 
um, be every instrument it can be, like every instrument in the rhythm section, have the, the dexterity and, and the rhythmic uh, conception mm-hmm. um, and variation of a drummer in your playing. Yeah. Um, have the, the steadfastness of the bass player, be able to walk bass lines also and have an understanding of the harmony from that sense, but also have the harmonic diversity of the pianist and then have the single line understanding of the saxophone. Yeah. And the lyrical nature, the, the, the vocal nature of it. And so when, <clears throat> when, I, um, uh, when I had studied with him some, uh, I had studied with him from a grant, uh, uh, an NEA grant, yeah. Endowment for the Arts, and uh, um, it was a lot of conceptual things that he talked about, uh, you know, talking about projection also, you know, thinking about if you're in an auditorium or if you're uh, playing for an audience in a small club, whatever. He said, think about playing behind the last person in the club. Or if you see a door in the back of the club, think about putting your sound through that door. He said the people in the front row are always going to be able to hear you. Yeah. But the idea of projection is an entirely different concept than the idea of playing loud or soft. Yeah, that's, right, that's, right. that's a neat. It's a whole different thing. And, and so I talked to big bands about that also. I'm like, you know, think, think about even at a soft volume, even at your pianissimo, that you have to reach behind the person that's in the back row. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, think about this whole audience, and then behind them there's a big field. I said, I want, you, I want you to think that there's one person at the very back of that field, and I want you to play behind them. Yeah. But think like a small group. Right, and suddenly, like their sounds get huge, mm-hmm. but they're quiet. I I can see how th- what you're talking about in these past couple of minutes about the projection and letting your instrument become other instruments and approach it from the back door instead of the obvious. I mean, you, you do your share of of traveling to different schools and you lecture and you have seminars and and clinics and all that. I mean, I bet you they must eat this stuff up. I mean, because this is type of of, of approaches to music that uh, you know sometimes even musicals don't hear too often. Correct. Um. I'm not sure if they hear it or not. Yeah. Um, if if they do, I'm glad, uh, and it'll be reinforced with the stuff I'm talking about. Right, uh-huh. um, but that's been a, a really profound thing for me, you know, going into these different schools and, mm-hmm. and working with these kids. Um, I'm a Yamaha and Van Dorn performing artist, so they, they right. support me going into these places, too. And they'll usually um, uh, help cover the cost of bringing me into the clinics, which has been really great. Yeah. And so one of the things that... Um, that's been really great for me is, is getting to go in and, and really work uh, not only with their ensembles, but with these kids one-on-one also. I do these li- listening uh, clinics also. I'm doing a, a clinic, a pedagogy clinic at the IAJE conference um, in Toronto in January of 2008 also. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been uh, an area that I've moved into um, that's been really profound for me. And, and people ask me, you know, like some of my greatest experiences in music, and they come through clinics. You know, with all the stuff that I've been able to do and been fortunate enough to do, there's, to me, there's nothing quite like um, working with a student who's inspired enough to improvise for the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, I, I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it right now, yeah. and, and, and that's happened a lot. You know, that, that there are these young students that, that um, feel comfortable enough with the situation, with the music, with... Uh, maybe it's my being there, maybe, I mean, whatever it is, they pick up on that energy and they decide that, okay, they're going to try it. And uh, there's, you know, there's been kids that, that come up and they're just wide-eyed and they're like, oh, my God, man, I want to I improvise on every tune from now <laughs> on. 
Right. I'm like, good. That's exactly what I want to hear right yeah. there. Right. You know, I get these letters back from, you know, from parents or from students or directors, and it's um, it's good. It's it's encouraging to me also. Um, I know that there's a lot of a lot of guys out there that are kind of old school, and you know, I've seen I've seen people berate students before, and I'm like, sure. I, I don't understand how that's going to help. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, so my approach is very different. And I'm not saying it doesn't help, but I just don't understand um, the reasoning for that, yeah. basically. And, and I, I really feel that music is supposed to be joyful and, and, and full of emotion and passion. Um, but there are some very important things that, that I, I feel that I, can, uh, that I can share with these students now, also having the experience that I've had and, and uh, you know, having uh, played as much music that I've had. I feel like there's a lot of growth that I can help them with. Sure. Well, that's great that you do that. It's it's really refreshing to hear that too because, you know, especially here in the United States, uh, budget cutbacks are forcing a lot of uh, uh, music uh, programs sure, and yeah. schools, you know, to – they're going by the wayside in, in a lot of cases, especially a lot of inner city school systems. And, and uh, you know, it's – you know, I kind of see, foresee at some point that um, if music programs are gone, students who really want to – you know, reach out and, and explore their musical passions are going to have to find it from people like yourself in, in one-on-one education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really great that you do that. I, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So I appreciate your appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we appreciate your appreciation, my appreciation. We really do. All right, now you're pushing it. <laughs> so you became a member of the Grammy Award-winning band Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Uh, I think it was in 1997, and you know you've performed on, on every album since, beginning with Left of Cool. And, yeah. You know, how did you first hop on with the band, and, and was this by invitation, audition? How did you meet up with those yeah, guys? Um, it's interesting. Uh, when I moved to Nashville, there was really no place to, to play improvised music, and so I started a jam session, which ran for about nine years. And at one of the jam sessions, there was a drummer that had come through and played named Tom Pollard, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, 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 he used to live in Nashville, lives in New York now. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of Bela's and a couple of the other guys. And so he had left a, a phone message for Bela and said, oh, there's this tenor player in town that I don't think you know about. Uh, it was myself. And, and he, said, uh, um, he said, I think you'd really enjoy his playing. You know, you should look him up at some point. So at that time, I was playing with uh, R&B soul band, a five-horn R&B soul band, um, uh, here in Nashville, and we were in Aspen mm-hmm. uh, doing some recording and doing some playing, and the Flectones were coming through. And uh, I was hanging out with this this, uh, this buddy of mine, this great trumpet player, uh, lives in Worcester, Mass now, Bill Fanning. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, if, if we could find Vic, I said, you know, we'd probably get some tickets for a night show, you know, go see the Flectones and say hi to some guys from Nashville. And literally within 30 seconds, Vic's walking down the middle of the street towards us. <laughs> I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and so... Uh, uh, we went to the show, and, and I went down during the set break to say thanks, and, and uh, uh, got introduced to Bale, and he kind of looks at me weird, and, and he says, I've got a message on my machine to get in touch with you when I get home. What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, and so I told him, and he says, well, look, why don't you hang out, and let's, let's wrap after the show. And, and so we decided we would get together uh, in Nashville, uh, you know, after, after we were both back off the road, and did some playing. We played some uh, some original tunes of mine, a couple of his, and some Ornette tunes, and a couple of standards, and uh, and just really hit it off, man, personally and musically. And cool. And uh, they were playing at a place called Cafe Milano here in town, which is about a 250, 300 seat venue. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing five nights. 
And he said, you know, on one of these nights, why don't you come down and play a couple of tunes? And so, so I did, and, and uh, that night, Stuart Duncan, uh, the great fiddle player, was supposed to play also, but his daughter had the flu. And so Bayless said, well, why don't you just play the whole night with us? Holy cow. And, uh, and this was in, in December, so they were doing some Christmas tunes and whatnot, and I was like, well, I don't know any of your tunes. He's like, well, we'll play some vamps, a couple of blues things, and, you know, maybe we'll do that Ornette tune that we, that we did also, and, uh, um, you know, a couple of these Christmas things are pretty easy. And, and uh, <laughs> so I said, okay. And I remember writing out um, Sunset Road on a napkin and balancing it on my on, on the microphone stand, <laughs> hoping like hoping and praying that it's not going to like catch a little gust of wind and blow off in the middle of the tune. <laughs> and you had those situations where you actually have to make a hole in the napkin so it can just go right over it. Right, you know, I'm like, I'm like licking part of the napkin <laughs> exactly. and keep it stuck together and all, you know, it's just ridiculous. So you made it through that concert, huh? Made it through, and, and, uh, and we had a great time, you know, and uh, um, got into some really nice moments with Future Man also, kind of a... Elvin Trainish kind of vibe, you know, and, yeah. and uh, just real high energy. And they asked me to do, I think, three or four dates with them when they were in uh, in Vermont. Well, they were going to Vermont, and then it was three days at the Knitting Factory in New York. Yeah, and uh, which to me was, you know, it was like going to Mecca. And, uh, <laughs> that was like I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to sure. play the Knitting Factory, like with this group. Even. Uh, I was scared to death, man. Yeah. Absolutely scared to death because they have some very, very complex music and, yeah, and definitely. crazy time signature stuff and you know I could play in four and three and that was about it at that time <laughs> and so you know now there's stuff that's in 11 or 17 sure. or, or you know God only knows what on some of the stuff I don't even know what some of the stuff is in quite frankly yeah. there's, there's the, the song UFO Tofu there's, there's a section in that music where I listen to it and I try to keep up and I get lost well you know the, that song <laughs> is a palindrome it's the same forward as it is backwards no kidding. Yeah, yeah that's what the name you comes kidding? from. UFO Tofu is a palindrome. Oh, interesting. I n- well, I never put that together. That's yeah. interesting. All you have to do is listen halfway through, and then you got the rest of the Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Save yourself some time, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that's good. That's cool. <laughs> Gee whiz, 10 years has gone uh, pretty quick, huh? Boy, you ain't kidding, man. man. It's unbelievable. Well, it's pretty well known that the Flat Tones are a pretty hardcore touring band. I mean, you guys play over 200 dates a year, and uh, that's a lot of touring, you know, when you think of uh, the band obligations and your personal stuff. And on... Yeah, well, we've actually cut back uh, in the last number of years. We end up doing now about about 75 to 100 dates a year. Really? Okay, that's good. And, uh, uh, and we're going to start actually even expanding, uh, like, our time off even more, you know, mm-hmm. so that really to keep the longevity of the group. You know, right. we're going to start taking off like a year at a time or a year and a half at a time and then tour right. for a while and then and then do more of kind of what like what Matheny does. And, and the idea behind that is that that everybody does have different things going on. People have families and, and whatnot. So in order to keep the group going, it makes more sense right. to give everybody more time uh, because we don't have to do 200 dates a year, right? Yeah. Now. Well, it's also the fact that you're all musicians and you you have other things you want to do. I mean, you you know, other projects that you want to work on and that, that keeps you fresh. Yep. Yeah, it sure does. Is yeah. that what happened in 2005? I mean, you took the guys took pretty much the year the year off, right? Yeah. Yeah. We all had lots of different projects that we did, and we're going to do the same thing um, uh, at the end of this October. We're going to yeah. take another year off. Yeah. Cool. And uh, we're working on a, on a holiday record that. Um, We'll finish up at the beginning of 2008, and then we're planning on doing some dates uh, at the end of 2008 to support that. And, uh, you know, and, and 
in typical Flecktones fashion, it's going to be a pretty strange record. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't expect anything less. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, we've enjoyed all kinds of, uh, of of creations that you're behind right now, but I want to f- I want to ask you a question uh, <clears throat> regarding your 1999 90- release of it was a solo album called Commonality. And uh, it was recorded, um, you know, with assistance of uh, a small combo. It was um, Rod McGeha, uh, Chris uh, Engauser, and uh, Tom Giampetro right. on drums. And right. uh, this is just a wonderful album. I, I just can't tell you how much I got jazzed about this whole thing. I mean, it's uh, that the, some of the tracks that stand out me personally are it's Salt Lick, Angel of Rep- Repose, Something Quick, and the shortest track, which is very rich and very train-esque, but it's, it's pretty. Right, yeah, uh, uh-huh. beautiful album. Talk to us a little bit about about this album because the uh, it sort of leads on to another solo album that came after that that was quite different. But this was really nice. Talk to us a little about commonality. It's interesting because when I had when I had my group when I was doing the jam session, mm-hmm. uh, usually I would have a quintet. I would have piano, uh, uh, trumpet player Bill Fanning. I was telling you about before yeah. myself, Tommy, uh, and Chris Enghauser. Um, uh, well, so what happened the, the keyboard player Tom Reynolds that was playing with me at the time uh, ended up uh, moving to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, uh, Bill Fanning ended up getting um, a full ride for his master's degree at New England Conservatory. Yeah. And so they both split, and we were left with this trio, and I thought, well, okay, I guess I'll have to write some trio tunes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Tommy and I, the okay. way that we met uh, was from this jam session also, um, he had called me the day after, and he was like, I, I didn't get a chance to play, and I'd love to just get together and just do some duets with you. And I had no idea who he was. He had just moved to town from Miami, and I was like, come on over, man. i got nothing to do today. Right. And so so we hit, and, and he's like one of my musical soulmates. He's kind of like, I call him my little Eddie Blackwell. And uh, I just think he's such a unique and profound human being, mm-hmm. um, and his playing is, is just the same to me. Um, so it, it kind of came out of a lot of that. It kind of came out of uh, of a transition from one group into something else. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was leading somewhere also. Um, um, and to me, when I when I did uh, Go Round, I wanted to start that record where Commonality left off. I follow you. And, and I wanted to follow one of those branches. And the same with Bloom, my last one. Mm-hmm. I wanted that to start and, and follow one of the branches that, that Go Round... Um, uh, had 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 um, had branched off from, mm-hmm. um, but the whole idea of commonality is that uh, you know, to me, uh, I realized around that time that that things were very very connected, and uh, and that's the whole idea behind it is that that music to me is and, and life also is about this connected idea that they were all connected in some way that that we all influence one another um, through what we do through what we say. Um, how we feel, how uh, how we express ourselves, all these different things. And, mm-hmm. and, um, so that's that's a lot of what that record is about. You know, even even the way that um, that we used to hang together. You know, it was really built around the three of us. And I had Rod come in on some stuff. Um, that was some of the first times that Rod and I had actually gotten to play together uh, in those settings. And, and we've since become very, very, very tight friends. Yeah. And uh, we've played thousands of hours together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he's a very, very interesting musician as well. And, and so I think that the kind of the uniqueness of everybody um, lended, uh, lended towards the uniqueness of, of that project. Yeah. You, you mentioned Go Round. And something, you know, as, as, a, as a project that sort of fed off of uh, commonality, 
in approaching Go Round, I mean, something else ha- happened also. You sort of uh, came up with a a, uh, a name of, uh, of your quartet or, <laughs> and so yeah. forth. But it's, it's a, tell us what Mutet is about for us, for the information of our, for our audience. And, and it's really a civic, philosophical approach as to what, what music is, is to you. Talk to us about not just Go Round, but Mutet. Yeah, um, again, Go Round was, was, um, influenced a lot by the stuff that I had been checking out at that time, the African yeah. stuff, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim also. Yeah. Um, I was checking out a lot of Dewey Redmond at the time. Um, just uh, just really breaking into some some different areas musically. And and I feel that that was influencing that too, also a lot of New Orleans stuff. Right. Um, so I wanted to, I realized that, you know, it, the music that means the most to me is music that has, a, has motion to it, that's cyclical. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of go round is that there's there's motion to it. Right. It's almost like a tumbleweed, and that tumbleweed, it's it's moving, but it's not always moving at the same pace or at the same quickness. Mm-hmm. And Ornette's music is a lot like that to me as well. And so yeah. there were certain things that I really wanted to explore with that record. Mm-hmm. Andrew Hill, I was listening to a lot at the time, also, and and uh, uh, and, and, and different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of of coming up with a group name. Um, was something that I spent some time with also, and, and, and I came up with the name Mutet, um, coming from the word mutation, yeah. which to me is, is really, what, um, really what music is all about for me, is that it's always changing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always different, and, it, and it's like, you know, I'm not sure that I've, I've, I've ever seen a non-perfect day, because it really can't be anything other than that, but it's always changing. If you look at the sky, the sky is always different. Right, exactly. Right. It's always changing and ever mutating. So it's the whole idea behind music also. You know, you can get really caught up in, in um, the imperfections of things that that, um, that you miss, you know, mistakes you make and that kind of thing. But for me, it's like at, at a certain time, I think you have to get beyond that. You have to accept the fact that you're never going to play the perfect solo. Mm-hmm. You're never going to write the perfect tune. But the spirit that's behind the music, to me, is what carries it through. And that's, that's that motion of it also. It's the emotion of it and it's the motion of it. And that's always changing. Right. I'm never going to feel the same two days in a row. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that, um, well, let me put it a different way. I, I feel that music should reflect that. And that's interesting what you were saying about perfect because truly, and I think you mentioned this, what is perfect, you know? Obviously, it's anyone's idea of what is right, but, you know, like you said, there's so many variables in life and, and with music, you know, as a, uh, an analogy there. Yeah, and if you stay in the moment, that moment has got to be perfect because it can't be anything else. Right. Exactly. It doesn't mean that, that you've had better, you haven't had better moments or you haven't had worse moments, but if you're in that place, if you're able to be in that moment, it's like, you know, when you talk about being in the zone as a musician, Mm-hmm. At that moment, once you realize you've been there, you're out of it. <laughs> but when you're able to think back and go, oh, what was that about? You realize that, that at that moment that everything is connected. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's, that's a lot about it. You know, I'm not saying that, that it's a perfect record. I'm not saying that it's a perfect solo. I'm not saying that, uh, that I'm a perfect person. But I'm saying that in the very moment that I'm in, there is perfection there. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, the, the, the name of... of this upcoming record of mine um, that'll probably be released early 2008 that I'd love to talk about some as well after Bloom mm-hmm. um, is going to be called Mutopia. And, uh, and, and, and I kept thinking about it, and, I, and, I, and the more I think about it, the more I like it, because it's the whole idea that, that the utopia is in the ever-changing moment. <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. 
you know, and That's so it cool. kind of it kind of harkens to to a lot of different things. And, and to me, it's like change in music is what attracts me to it. I don't, you know, if I was playing bossa novas all day long, I, I'd be done playing by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, or any style of music. All right. Um, so that that idea of change and that idea of mutation and, and the mutability. Uh, this is a great poem by by Lord Byron called Mutability. Also, or uh, is it Immutability. Uh, something, something about that whole thing, and I, hmm. I've been reading that at the time also, and, and uh, you know, so there's a lot of different things that 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 come into the music that are, well, that are not music, mm-hmm. but they're directly related. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned your upcoming uh, release, I guess, in 2008 called Mutopia. And the question I was about to ask, you know, in, in jazz being such an amalgam of sounds and ideas and, and structure, uh, you know, well, the, you the, wouldn't know it by most of the stuff that's out there. <laughs> True. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm serious about that, man. I, you know, that's that, that's actually something that I'd like to address mm-hmm. really quick. And I, you know, I'm not slamming any of the musicians. I'm just uh, I, I'm really disappointed with uh, the idea of what jazz is. I mean, I don't even mm-hmm. know what that word means anymore, quite frankly, but, right. you know, all these guys that are even, you know, that are younger than myself, I'm, I'm 41, um, and there are guys out there that are, you know, 20, 25 years old that are still playing Duke Ellington, and don't get me wrong, Duke is one of the true geniuses of, of music, but it's like, that music is 70 years old, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what happened to, to the guys who were, like, improvising, leading the way? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like it used to be that that people would look for the improv the improvisers to be breaking things open, and then the rock guys would follow. Mm-hmm. But now it's like the rock guys that are influencing everything else, and the jazz guys are trying to catch up. And so something happened somewhere along the way that it almost became like this weird incestuous music. Mm-hmm. And and like there's these there there are purists that they go. Oh, if it's not Charles Mingus, it's not shit. And I, and I just don't agree with that. I mean, I love Charles Mingus. Yeah, right. One of my biggest influences. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's like, I want to take the spirit of that music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's a quote that says, uh, follow the line, not the style. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's saying, follow the spirit, not the style. Get away from the idea of genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and put some passion out there. Because that's what people are going to, uh, um, that's what people are going to take away. Mm-hmm. And take away the emotional content and how it makes them feel. And so, uh, again, you know, I, I really feel like people should be composing using their influences. You talk about Wayne Shorter or, or uh, Weather Report or Miles or, or, or any of these guys. And, and, you know, even Jocko, I mean, he was writing horn lines on the bass. Yeah. Well, hey, Jeff, let me talk about you for a minute. When, when you begin constructing a new piece, or, you know, where do your ideas spawn and, and how do you go about writing and composing some of your own music? Um. There's, you know, there's a lot of different ways. Sometimes um, a melody will come to me, and I'll you know write it down on a napkin in my car, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, or I'll, I'll sing it into my computer, mm-hmm. or um, into my phone, or what. You know, any way that I can get that idea down, I'll do it. Well, what I was going to ask you a second ago, I started to. You kind of went off into a different tangent, which I appreciated. But what I was saying about jazz being like an amalgam of sounds and ideas, and you know, wild structures and, and changes, even within one piece, and how it can vary so wildly. You know, how do you put that all together when you're writing? Um, experimenting. Well, yeah. There was a. Um, uh, it's a, he's a, a great drummer up in Maine named Steve Grover. He's also a wonderful pianist and, and composer. He's the guy that uh, won the first um, Thelonious Monk Composers Competition hmm. uh, back in the mid-'80s. And uh, I was doing some teaching with him uh, in the summer up in Maine at the Maine Jazz Camp also. 
And one of the things that, that um, you know, I talked to him about composition a lot because I thought, well, who better to talk to than this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so one of the things that he talked to me about was, was really reworking melodies, like trying things, putting them in different places on the beat, displacing, like if you have a good melody, that good melody is going to always be a good melody. Right, yeah. By displacing it in some ways or by playing it rubato or whatever, you start to come up with different ideas. So one of the ways that I do it is I, is I look at these melodies and sometimes I'll play them backwards or invert them. Mm-hmm. Um, just try different things, but I'm always trying to come up with good melodies. Um, and that, to me, is, is where I start usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't that open the door if you think about it for improvisational thinking? I mean, because you start restructuring it, you lay down the framework, and then from an improvisational perspective, I mean, you can do anything at any time, correct? I think so. You know, and one of my favorite players is Charles Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, Charles Lloyd exemplifies the idea of, of, of a compositional improviser. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Miles did also, Sonny, obviously. Um, I think Ornette does also. I mean, there's so much melody in what Ornette plays. Uh, you just have to listen to it a different way. You can't listen to it like you're listening to Charlie Parker necessarily. Yeah. You have to listen to it. Like, to me, Ornette sounds almost like field haulers or, or, or uh, folk tunes. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's chock full of melody. So, so I, yeah, I do think that that's a great jumping off point. I think that, um, well, you know, I, just, I was just writing this, this, uh, this paper the other day just because I've been thinking about it, but it's the whole idea of, of technique versus passion. Mm-hmm. And, and whether it's harmonic technique also, you know, I can listen to Abdul Ibrahim and get chills and then listen to, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, playing giant steps at, at a thousand miles an hour and just be going, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, where's the emotional content mm-hmm. here? I don't, you know, I don't want to hear you working on an exercise. I want to hear you pulling something from the deep recesses of who you are. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's like, like, Give me Marvin Gaye or Otis Redding any day of the week. <laughs> right. Or Aretha. And I'm telling you, man, you know, that music moves people. Why does it move people? Because you're getting a depth. Yeah. You, you know, know. Or, or, or Lightning Hopkins. You don't, you don't need any technique to express yourself. You know, it's like, the, like one of the things I put in, in, in this article. I said, you know, let me, let, me, let me ask you this question. You know, how many words does a baby need uh, to express to their parents that they need something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zero. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Exactly. So I mean, you talk about no technique, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but yet somehow these ideas and these emotions get passed through, and, and those are the things that we take with us. We see a child smile at something, or, or look at a flower, and 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 a smile comes over the face, and and, and, and you just know. Yeah, it's an amazing moment, man. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an epiphanal moment for both people. Mm-hmm. Is improv is, is improvisation? Uh, you know, when you talk to to students um, across the states or wherever you are, um, regarding improvisation, is, is that something that can be taught? I mean, that's a yes. that's that's quite difficult. I mean, it's it's because it's, it's it's almost you have to internalize it and you have to really get it. But uh, is that tough for a, for a musician to to grasp? Well, you know, I don't I don't think so. It's you know, like we're improvising this conversation, right? Exactly. You know, and. I'm not as eloquent as some, uh, and I'm more eloquent than others. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm reacting to it. So, no, I think the concept of improvisation is, is always going to be there, and I think it's always been the thing that's been there. Mm. What I think ends up happening is that, that young students aren't encouraged to improvise quickly enough. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, oh, you have to have these scales together. You have to have all this stuff together before you can improvise. I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. 
I think that, that you should start improvising the minute that you get something. You know, if, if you've never played piano, sit down at a piano and try to find some stuff. That's mm-hmm. improvising. Mm-hmm. You know, the word improvisation comes from the word improvisio, the Latin root, which literally means unexpected or surprise. Mm-hmm. So what you're being asked to do as an improviser is surprise people, is to, is to give something that's unexpected. Um, and, and to me, the idea of surprise is that you end up feeling a surprise in your body. When somebody jumps from around the corner, um, or when you have a surprise party, or, or when someone scares you, or whatever, you feel that surprise in your body, mm-hmm. and you remember those moments. Right. Um, if somebody comes and visits you that you haven't seen for 15 years, you know, a great friend, you remember that moment of emotion, that unexpected, that, that, uh, uh, that surprise. And, and to me, that's what improvisation is about. And, and forget about genre. Yeah. Um, improvisation has been the one thing that's survived all the way through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, musical genres will come and go, but the idea of the unexpected being something that people gravitate towards will always be there. I think that when you're talking about improvisation from a musical standpoint, there really is, and it really boils down to. Uh, Chemistry and and communication, uh, you know the way you you know when I've seen you guys on stage with uh, you know you and the Flectones and and it's you know you you just really feel each other out. You kind of you kind of it's like this like you said this conversation. We're just we're, you and I we're feeling each other out. And we're right, kind of right. you know find, figuring out what to ask you and talk talk to you next about. And that's the way you sort of fly sometimes when you're on stage. Well, right, and at the same time, you know these. Conversations like this, or or, or improvisational um, uh, encounters that people have with one another, I think that that you know you grow from those things. Also, mm-hmm. I think that you allow yourself to uh, try things and say things, or or bring certain points across that um, uh, that you learn from. And the next time it might be a little different, uh, or five years from now it might I, you know I might have a different philosophy about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's a lot. I think there's a lot that can be learned from trying those things, from just kind of putting it on the line. Um, and, and you're right. You know, we are always trying to um, communicate with one another on stage. There's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes on, also a sure. glance, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, a smile or or a laugh or a body motion or whatever. Um, you know, one of the things that I do in my clinics also is, is I go and I play for the students. I play solo for about 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I go through a lot of different styles of, of playing the saxophone, um, playing chords on the instrument, uh, different kinds of articulation, altissimo, double horn stuff, um, singing through the instrument, growling through the instrument. Um, anything that I can think of, basically, I'm going to try to do it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And when I get done, we start talking about what they heard. And so I put the stuff up on the board, and I'm like, okay, what else? What else did they have? That's cool. Techniques. Yeah. And so by the time we have 40 or 50 things on the board, which is pretty quick, actually, yeah. um, then, I, then I say, okay, anything else? And at, at the point that we can't really pull anything else out, we have probably 40 or 50 things on the board. And I say to them, now, which of these are not elements of improvisation? Mm. And, of course, they all are. Yeah. And they go, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they realize that there's there as many things as they can imagine. Sure. They can try to pull out of their instruments. Mm-hmm. And they can try things and they can experiment. <clears throat> and at the same time I talk to them about the basics. You know, needing to be sure that you're working on these things because 
you have to foster the roots. Yeah. Because the oak tree is not going to grow if the roots aren't there. You're right, absolutely. But eventually, that oak tree, man, is 200 years old, and it's going to last <laughs> another 200 years. Yeah. Because that foundation is there. Yeah, and the leaves are still coming out fresh. Absolutely. Yep, that's, absolutely. that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful analogy. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, I, I really encourage people to improvise as soon as they can. Mm-hmm. But you have to work on the other side of it also. Yeah. Well, hey, we're going to switch gears just a little real quick. We we recently had uh, Jeff Babco as a guest here on Inside Music Cast. And oh, man, he owes me money. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that you recently performed with he and Vinny Caliuta on the uh, Mondo Trio Project. And, yeah. You know, Jeff said that you were a real nag to work with. And, and he did not. He said he was. Oh, that's not going to happen. No, he said he was a good good guy. Right. <laughs> now, he had great things to say about you, and, uh, and now you get to return the favor. Tell me a little bit about your experience uh, working with Babco and Vinny. Oh, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. There you go. Very good comeback. On that note, folks, thanks for being with us. <laughs> thanks. I'll be here all night. That's right. <laughs> Send money. Um, no, you know, what, what an incredible experience. Um, I was actually talking to a buddy of mine last night about that. Uh, everything on that record is first takes. Really? And, uh, you know, I had met Jeff... Um, through my buddy Tom Giampietro, uh, when Tommy went up to Northern Iowa to get his master's degree. He's a drummer, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he and Jeff had gone to University of Miami together. And so Jeff was out on the West Coast by this point, and, and so Tommy had his master's recital, and he invited myself and, and uh, Jeff Babco and, uh, and some other folks up to, uh, to do this. And so Babco and I met up there and really hit it off and just had a ball, and, and he said, man, he says, let's do something together. And I said, let's do something together. <laughs> and uh, and so a couple months later he called and he said, you know, I want to get Vinnie Caliuta and you and me to do a trio record. And I said, well, okay, man, absolutely, let's do it. And so, again, this is the whole idea of this interconnected nature of sure. all this stuff, man. And, and so we go out there, and, and, and uh, I had four tunes that I brought out for it, and Jeff had five tunes. And, and uh, um, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, what, what are we going to do, you know, with keyboards, drums, and saxophones? <laughs> and and you hear what we ended up doing, right, you know, right, this whole right. idea of of, <laughs> of of like minds um, going in and trying a bunch of different stuff. Um, so we were in the studio for two days, and it was just fantastic, man. I mean, Vinny is such a sweet human being, and, and what an amazing catalyst as a musician. And you know, and, and Babco just speaks for himself too. Just a, yeah. a beautiful, beautiful human being and an incredible mm. musician, a wonderful composer, and and. Um, they just both have a very similar spirit to the kind of musicians I really enjoy being around. Very mm-hmm. adventurous uh, and really willing to just put it out there and lay it on the line. Well, the, you, you said something very important that the three of you were like like minds. And if you were to listen to the album, just the air of freedom, experimentation, improvisation, you can you can see it at every single level from you know, from Jeff's keyboards to to your horn playing and even even Vinny. I mean, you're right. It, it's it's very apparent. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I think that we're all very passionate musicians, and, and it's interesting because, um, you know, there was w- one of the things that I learned during that um, is, is, a, is a particular element of trust of my, of my own playing. Like, I remember there's one tune, um, I can't remember if it's X Marks the Spawn or what, almost sounds a little bit like a, a Copeland, this, Copeland meets Ornette or something, you know. And uh, I remember in the middle of that, um, it breaks down to me and Vinny. I'm playing alto, and, and it's just like an alto and drums. And I, and I remember it very vividly, man, like like once Babco dropped, 
dropped out, I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> I'm playing a duet with Vinnie Colyuda. <laughs> I hope I don't screw it up. I, I remember very vividly, I'm thinking, don't panic. <laughs> Relax, and it's going to be fine. And, and, and I did. And, and, uh, um, and it's funny because I can listen to it and I can hear the moment that I thought that. I remember, ex- I swear, man, it's, it's like I can read it right in front of my face in big letters. Wow. And... Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a pretty epiphanal moment for me. But oh, one, of, one of the things I realized is that I've played differently ever since that session. Really? Yeah, because of Vinny. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, because of the way that he conceptualizes rhythm, he's, mm-hmm. he's almost like if you see a swarm of birds mm-hmm. and they're all moving, like and suddenly they shift and they're doing kind of this almost figure eight dip kind of thing or Mobius strip or whatever. Um, you look at it and you go, well, how do they move in that direction? And Vinny's the same way. It's kind of like he'll do something, and you go, how did that happen? Yeah. It's almost like everything is in, in one, rather than thinking in time signatures. Mm-hmm. Everything is in one, and he's reacting that quickly to things. It's, it's, it's profound, man. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Really amazing. Well, that's cool. Well, if any of our listeners are interested in hearing some tracks from that, you go back to the Jeff Babco uh, interview that we did a while back, and yeah. we, he actually allowed us to put two cuts on there. So. That's right. Nice. Yeah, that, that record's on uh, on Abstract Logics, mm-hmm. L-O-G-I-X dot com. Well, hey, real quick, I want to talk just a little bit more about Flectones. I touched, we touched on them a little earlier, but I've had the good fortune, you know, to experience uh, – you with the Flectones, you know, a dozen times or more. And, and you guys are, without a doubt, one of the most talented group of musicians, as, you know, assembled mm-hmm. on one stage. And what I love about your shows are that, you know, no two shows are exactly alike. And I'm not just talking about the set list. I'm talking about how you perform each song each yeah, night. And, right. and, you know, this goes back to improv again. Tell me about your stage presence up there with, with Vic and, and Bela and Future Man and how you guys feed off of each other and how much improv is actually going on during one of your concerts. Uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh-huh. There's um there's a lot of composition within the tunes, but there's a great deal of improv as well, and you know we we're, we are trying to keep things different all the time. We're trying to um, come up with with new ways of of playing a certain tune. You know when you played a tune almost 500 times, uh-huh. you know that you got to figure out a different way through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those guys, you know they've played a tune like Stomping Grounds. It's been like almost 20 years that, that the group has been together. So, yeah. I mean, you're talking about like two or 3,000 times. Mm-hmm. With only 12 notes to choose from in, in, in the Western scale, you know, you start to go, okay, what else is there? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are things that, that we try to think about and we try to expand upon and, and we talk about. You know, sometimes we'll give ourselves little musical games, you know, like it might be... Uh, from a movie, or it might be a particular interval, or it might be that, you know, we've just checked out a Monk video on the bus or something, and then everybody plays differently. Right. So it's this whole idea that, that by listening, you can expand. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that that group does incredibly well, uh, is everybody listens to each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and everybody is, um, in, in my opinion, really trying to expand their instrument Really, every night, you know, I think that we're trying to do things um, that are exciting to us, mm-hmm. um, even more so than like I, I don't think anybody's trying to show off. No, I, I, I really don't. Like I don't ever get that vibe that that yeah. uh, um, through the technique anybody's showing off. I get the vibe that somebody's trying something, mm-hmm. 
And, and my favorite parts of the night are when I'm not playing because I get to listen to everybody else play. <laughs> it's great. I sit back there and I go, these guys are some bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the Flectons have, they've got some of the most dedicated fans of any band that I've, I've ever witnessed. Uh, you know, almost on the same level of some of the great touring bands such as, you know, The Dead or, or even Fish. And on, on the other hand, I've always been blown away at how much respect the band has for its fans. And I, I'm not sure if you guys are still doing this after shows, but every show I've ever attended, all four of you come out after the show and meet up with your fans. And yep. you guys seem to enjoy it just as much as the fans do. Oh, yeah, we love it. Yeah. We love it. That's always impressive. Yep. Not too many bands do that. <laughs> yeah, we do it all the time, and that's that's one of the things that means a lot to us. And I think that it does mean a lot to, to the people that come to see us as well. You know, I think that uh, having an opportunity, like for a young bass player, to have an opportunity to come up and, and rap with Vic, that's a really important and profound thing for somebody, you know, for somebody that's listened to the music for a long time to be able to come up and get something signed or, or you know, come up and talk about Ornette or Rasan Roland Kirk. You know, that means something to me also. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think that, that it's a real win-win situation um, when we do that. Uh, and, we, you know, we don't announce it during the gig, but, but people that come to the shows know that we do that. Yeah. And... Uh, and it's nice, you know. I mean, if we had to stay there for everybody, it would take all night. But <laughs> you know, not everybody, not everybody needs to hang or even wants to hang. But yeah. um, it's really nice the people that do, and we can find out, you know, different things that they're listening to and that they're influenced by. And um, you know, we get CDs from people, and, and you know, we we make really good friends on the road. That's good. That's great. That's, yeah. Hey, listen, I know that you have some Mutet uh, gigs coming up, as well as some Flectone gigs that are scheduled for the remainder of the year. But other than the new project that's coming out, uh, can you give us uh, an update as to other work that might be in the in the making here? Yeah, um, I did some stuff recently with uh, Humphreys McGee. Mm-hmm. There's a oh, record yeah. called Bottom Half uh, that I did two tunes on, horn arrangements on, that really both came out great. So I've been doing some stuff with them, and... Uh, Played on the new Mark Broussard record also. Yeah, very cool. And, uh, you know, just kind of doing a lot of different things. I've got a, a music camp coming up next week in Maryland, the Maryland Summer Jazz Camp. Uh, and that's really cool because that's for people who don't necessarily play um, full-time. Uh, it's almost like fantasy baseball camp. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I think, it's like four days or something, three or four days. Uh-huh. And a great friend of mine that I was in North Texas with, uh, a friend named Jeff Antoniak, who's a, a wonderful saxophonist, uh, and composer um, started this thing, and so it's uh, I think it's MarylandSummerJazz.com. Cool. And uh, got uh, a bunch of clinics lined up for the end of the year uh, up in the Chicago area, and, and some different things. Uh, IAJE is coming up. Um, you know, working on this record. This record is featuring a uh, future man playing acoustic drums. Uh, Kofi Burbridge, um, who plays with Derek Trucks, uh, and a number of other folks. Uh, uh, it's O'Teal Burbridge's brother. He's playing keyboards and flute on the record, mm-hmm. um, and he's kind of a genius like his brother also. He, I don't know what they were eating, but I want some of them. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, uh, Felix Pastorius, the son of Jaco Pastorius, oh, wow. playing bass. Very cool. Um, and killing it. He's like 24 years old, man. Wow. Just destroying He's got it, huh? <laughs> just destroying it. There's, uh, there's a tune where he and Vic um, play a solo together. Which was a really great moment. That's actually on YouTube. If you look up Felix Pastorius on YouTube, uh-huh. you'll find this um, the soul that he and Vic took together. Wow, I'll check and we went out. in and did fix it, so it's like a before and after kind of thing, which is really cool. And a uh, bunch of horn players from Nashville on a couple of tracks. Drummer from New Orleans on one of the tracks on a, on a real funky New Orleans thing. And uh, another bassist, Alana Rock, when she and I wrote a tune that uh, um, I included on the record that mm-hmm. she plays on. 
So I've been I've been working on that pretty hard, you know. Well, you know what we'll have to do is uh, maybe uh, sometime in the beginning of next year we'll have to get back with you and catch up and see how Absolutely. things are going with that album. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be great. Well, Jeff, we're, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I'm a My huge pleasure. fan, and, and uh, this has been an honor for, for me to get to chat with you and, and Eddie as well. And, Likewise. And uh, uh, we'll catch up with you soon. And for more information on Jeff, uh, you can visit his website at jeffcoffin.com, right? Yep, that's it. Wonderful. Excellent. Jeff, thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you very much. Take care and uh, good luck down the road. Thanks. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Jeff Coffin for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. <laughs>